y'all doing tonight? Hey, it, we do have a few visitors here tonight. I just want to say thank you for joining us. My name is Tom Trask. I'm the campus pastor, and we are happy to have you with us. Uh, some of our normal students are kind of weirded out a little bit because they're like, we sing four songs every single week. We don't like change. That's okay. Guess what, Emily? We're going to come back later, do a little bit more worship. How about that? You all right with that? Okay, I know. We want to make you happy. Jesus happier. We care more about that. But we want to make Emily happy too. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get into it tonight so we can get back to doing a little bit of praise and worship. Uh, we're currently in a series called Mary, Did You Know? And we've spent the last two weeks looking at the stories of Mary and Martha found in the Bible. Tonight we're going to be finishing up with uh, this part of the series by looking at their final appearance in the Bible, and we find that in John chapter 12. So what have we learned about Mary and Martha so far? We've discovered that Martha would be a type A personality, maybe a little more high-strung, uh, maybe she's a doer. That's a nicer way of saying it. Well, Mary, on the other hand, she's more type B, a little bit more contemplative, more of a word-based person. And we've learned that one personality is not better than the other, correct? You are great the way God made you. That being said, he does want us to embrace both personalities. He wants us to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did, and then he wants us to have Martha's hands and go out and serve him. Last week, we talked that uh, people with different personality types process frustration differently, including our frustration at God. We get frustrated with God when we don't get what we want, we don't get it how we want it, and we don't get what we want when we want it. For a type A personality, like Martha, we saw her frustration came out of an issue of trust. How can I trust you, God, when you didn't bother to show up when I needed you the most? even though she didn't understand, even though she was incorrect of what was going on, Jesus wanted to speak to her in that moment of frustration. And so Jesus went and he helped build up her trust. You don't understand what is going on, Martha. Your eyes are on the troubles. I'm asking you to turn your sight back to me. For someone like Mary, when she feels like the Lord was quiet or late, it wasn't so much an issue of trust. It was more about feeling like he didn't care for her. And so to combat that lie, Jesus gives Mary what we call the present of his presence. As we know, Jesus is God. He could have healed Lazarus from anywhere. He didn't have to go to Bethany, but he went to her to be with her in her suffering. 
And it wasn't only about Jesus being physically present in her suffering. He was also, also emotionally present. Even though he is the Son of God, even though he knows what's going to happen, even though he knows he's going to call her brother out of that tomb, he still weeps and mourns with her. Compassion is an emotional response of God's love to those who are hurting. All this was a precursor to Jesus performing one of the greatest miracles of all time in the Bible, bringing the dead back to life. And we've seen Mary and Martha's progress, we've seen their growth, and that brings us to the final story tonight, found in John chapter 12. This story takes place about six days before the Passover celebration, a.k.a. when Jesus is going to die. After Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus and his disciples go to a small village called Ephraim, near what the Bible says is the wilderness. Basically, anytime you see the wilderness in the Bible, we're talking a very rural place. Lonely. Quiet. He went there to prepare himself for the ultimate sacrifice he was going to make. To get alone with the Father and spend time with him. Anytime we see Jesus about to to enter into an intense time of ministry or even a life change, Jesus goes to the wilderness to be alone with God. And we see this concept bookends Jesus' ministry. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes into the wilderness to prepare for what was to come and for the three and a half years of service. And now, we see it again at the end of his life. Just a nugget that I think you guys should know. Want should never override wisdom. Want should never override ride wisdom even wanting to do something for the lord arthur you're in the air force correct outstanding thank you for your service by the way yes if your commander comes to you and tells you that he's got a mission for you He might even tell you what the overall mission is. What's your next step? Yes. You don't just go hop in a plane. You don't just go take off and fly around a bit. You go to a meeting. You lay out, you listen to the commander lay out details for you. And then you go to execute the mission. The smartest thing we can do is to spend time with the Father when we face major transitions in our life. Jesus exemplified that through both his ministry and his life. He didn't move until he gets the full story from the Father. Once the mission started, Jesus was very much spirit-led. He would listen to 
the Spirit's guidance. But he first would stop, get the plan from God, and then he would let the Spirit lead him. If you want to be the most productive, if you want the most peace, if you want the most guidance and wisdom in your life, then take extra time with God, especially at transition points in your life. You see, the biggest moves necessitates time with a big God. And too many Christians were forever spazzing out, just honestly. Y'all, I love working with this age group. You got a lot of energy, you don't always have the most focus. You, I want to do something for God, I want to do something for God. Slow down. Listen, and then use that folk energy to do what you're asking him, what he's asking you to do. And so, let's go ahead and uh, turn to chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, as always, we, would, we have it on the screen, right? Hey, we do tonight, okay. And I'm going to go ahead and read through these really quick. And then we'll uh, dive right in. Six days before Passover celebration began, Jesus arrives in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping, her, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. Should it, have, it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. So, what would you do if someone came back to life? What's the first response you should have? Throw a party, folks. If someone brought, if one of your friends or a family member came back from the dead, you'd stuck him in the ground, all of a sudden he pops up and he's not a zombie, you all should be celebrating what God has done. I don't know what kind of cake you get for that occasion. Funfetti, maybe angel food cake, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Either way, you need to have a celebration because something big just happened. Students, anytime Jesus performs a miracle in our lives, we need to have a time of celebration. Too often, Jesus will do something awesome for us, he, and then we will say, hey, thanks, Jesus, and then we move on to the next thing. Jesus deserves more than a quick thank you in passing. Jesus deserves 
the recognition. Jesus deserves a party. And the cool thing is that the party is also for us too. Lazarus wasn't just another guy there. He wasn't just one of the people in the village. He was a guest of honor. And we get to share in the celebration when Jesus does a miracle in us, through us, or for us. You see, we're blessed. We are a part of those, that miracle. And that's where we find Lazarus. He's sitting at the table hanging out with Jesus. Man, I don't know about you guys, but I wish I could have heard that conversation. Jesus. Heaven was not what I expected at all. It was so much better. I was only there for a few days and I want to go back. There's so much you can explain to me. But that was for another time. When we look at the story, we see people, we see familiar people that we've talked about the last few weeks doing familiar things. A dinner is prepared in Jesus' honor. What do we find Martha doing? She's serving. Martha's doing what Martha does. She's serving. But you see, there's a difference this time. She did her job, and she didn't complain about Mary. I like to believe that Martha was a smart woman. She also learned. Martha's service was valuable to Jesus. But it seems she also might have learned that what others do for Jesus is just as valuable. In the story, she goes about her business and she doesn't worry what anyone else is doing for the Lord. We've said it several times. I want you to hear it one more time. Discipleship isn't about making someone into you. It's about making someone more like Jesus. We all have a different role within the body of Christ. And everyone has their own part. None are better or worse. And all are necessary to make the whole function properly. Embrace who you are. Where do we find Mary in this story? Where? Literally, where do we find Mary? Thank you at Jesus' feet. It's fun as you study these stories. In all three Mary and Martha stories, we find Mary at the same place in each story. At the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Mary is welcoming Jesus into her home. You see, Martha had her own way of welcoming Jesus through the service, through making him dinner, trying to take care of him. She welcomed Jesus into his home, into her home, by being with him, by being near him, 
being at his feet and listening to him. In John chapter 11, we see Mary at Jesus' feet weeping. She is grieving in the presence of someone that understands her pain. Because that's where she knows she needs to be. And then finally, in John chapter 12, we find Mary at Jesus' feet worshiping him. Mary's in the right place at the right time, every time. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping her, his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Nard, if you care, is a rare, expensive ointment from India. It's not like today where you can hop on Amazon and have anything just shipped to your house. It was, it was something different. See, for that reason, it made it expensive. Uh, later on in the story, we learn that it's that little jar basically is worth a year's wages. So for some of you, that's like, will be $50,000, $60,000. Teachers, sorry, that's 30 for you. But, wah, wah, truth. All right. Either way, a year's worth of wages. So that gift was an expensive gift. It was an extravagant gift. You need to understand, not everyone had this jar of nard. This was one of those things that only rich people would have, or you literally save up your whole life to buy it, and basically you would use it as your retirement fund. And so it was a very extravagant gift to Jesus. It was an exotic gift, like I said, it's from India. You don't run down to the local, you know, market or, you know, break time to buy the stuff. And this gift was also an extraordinary gift because she completely, completely poured it out on him. I love it. I love this idea because she didn't cheap Jesus out, okay? She didn't just take a little bit, put it on him, you know, here you go, that's enough. Nah. She didn't hold anything back for him. Those words also describe Mary's worship. Expensive, extravagant, exotic, extraordinary. I want to give you our definition of worship for tonight. Worship is an expression of appreciation that comes out of an overflowing of love for God. Worship is an expression of appreciation that comes out of an overflowing love for God. Just going to be honest with you, Worship is more than singing songs, folks. Even though that's a big part of what we do, and it's important enough that to follow up this sermon next week, I've actually asked the worship team to go ahead and do the worship experience. It's going to be good. 
It is a part of our worship. But it shouldn't be limited to that. And actually, our praise, the songs that we sing, are pretty hypocritical when we stand here and we sing about how much we love Jesus, but we then never put our love into action. Mary didn't talk Jesus to death. She expressed her love through her actions. You and I are each called to live a life of worship. In Romans 12.1, says, Give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. That's what we see Mary doing. The story is also told in Matthew and Mark. And there, in Matthew and Mark, it focuses on the fact that Mary anointed Jesus' head. But John focuses on his feet for a different reason. Mary would have poured out so much of that perfume on Jesus that it would have just poured down from his head, all down his body, onto his feet. And it was customary for servants to wash the guests' feet that came to different parties, that came to celebrations, and then they would dry them with a towel. Mary's use of her hair as a towel goes far beyond the service of a slave. It was done in humility, and it also emphasized her extreme submission to Jesus. Without getting a ton of detail, let's just go with, in Jewish culture, a woman's hair was very, very, very important. There are some girls here. Your hair is very, very important to you. Julie, how many times a night do you brush your hair? Uh, yes, yeah. We, I used to mess with Julie. I'm like, what do you do, the whole hundred brushes thing? Only 50, Tom. It's nothing that much. <laughs> But to the Jewish women, it was very important. The Apostle Paul says that a woman's hair was a sign of her glory. And so if you take that, by her act, she abandons her glory to the one who abandoned his glory at the right hand of God to come to earth and in just a few days, to die a criminal's death for mankind. Her worship was based in and flowed out of a love for Jesus. And her act of humility reflected the humble act that Jesus himself was about to do. Jesus only expects us to do what he did. That means that we need to live our lives as a living sacrifice of love to the Lord. Verse 3 goes on to say, the house was filled with the fragrance. If you got a halfway decent imagination, you can imagine this. I bet it smelled beautiful. The, that aroma, that perfume, 
permeated everything and everyone in that house and probably would have lasted for days. As Christians, that's what our worship should do to the world around us. This world stinks, folks. It does. The rot of sin and death leaves a bad odor, and Jesus has called us to be the Glade plug-ins to the world. <laughs> Always have Michaela. All right. <laughs> it's true, though. We are to bring light, we are to bring flavor, and we are to bring fragrance. Ephesians 5.2 says, Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. A pleasing aroma to God. So let me ask you guys a question tonight. Does the fragrance of your worship fill the house? Does the fragrance of your worship continually make the house smell good? Or is it a cheap perfume that wears off quickly and is quickly forgotten? Jesus wants the long-lasting stuff. As we go on in the story, Judas, the disciple who would betray Jesus in just a few days, watches Mary from a distance as she gives this beautiful gift of worship to Jesus. And instead of being impressed by her gift, or maybe even convicted by Mary's sacrifice, he's critical of her. That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And this opinion wasn't just limited to Judas. In Matthew and Mark, it says that the disciples were indignant. They were angry at Mary when they saw this. What a waste! That is broken! Now it's useless! Students, there is a difference between criticism and critiquing, just so you know. Criticism is the act of pointing out the perceived shortcomings of a person or their work, and they don't care about a person's success. Is this on the screen behind me? Is that what? Okay. I don't always know what they actually put up. So, Criticism is the act of pointing out the perceived shortcomings of a person or their work, and it doesn't care about the person's success. Critiquing is an evaluation of something that leads to making something better. There's also a big part of critiquing. It's asked for. Mary never asked for their opinions. And the thing is, criticism often covers up a person's true intentions. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. 
all Judas cared about was lining his own pockets. He wanted it sold for his benefit, not for the benefit of the poor, and definitely not for the benefit of the Lord. Every single month we have a leadership meeting. And at every single leadership meeting, we critique the past month's event. The good, the bad, in an effort to make those things better for the ministry. I like evaluating stuff. It's my personality. I like tweaking. I like building on things. I like getting our leaders' thoughts on how to make things better. What I don't have time for are people who only care about telling you what's wrong with what you're doing. And I don't have time for people that don't care about making things better. Especially when they're not willing to deal with the sin that is corrupting their lives. I like it. I always like what Jesus said. First, get rid of the log in your own eye then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Reality is there will always be critics. You can't do much about that. But I do want to give you a couple ways to deal with your worship critics. The first, let Jesus handle it. I love that Jesus comes to Mary's defense she didn't have to stick up for herself. She didn't have to get mad at Judas. You don't see her going off and complaining at the disciples. She offers Jesus her worship, and Jesus comes to her defense. Leave her alone. We can be confident that what Jesus will always have our backs when we do what is right and what is holy. Our Savior isn't going to passively sit by and allow us to be attacked. He is our defender. He is our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help. We are pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Let Jesus deal with it, because he will. Secondly, Remember who your worship is. Remember who your worship is for. He could have stopped Judas and the disciples from criticizing Mary. He's the Son of God. He knew it was coming. But a lot of times, folks, criticism actually purifies our worship. Mary had to know that people were going to look down on her for pouring that, that perfume over Jesus. She had to have known that people were going to think that she was stupid for wasting that kind of money. She probably even wondered if Jesus would even like it. And you know what? Any of those things could have potentially stopped her from giving her sacrifice of worship to the Lord, but it didn't. She still went through with her sacrifice. And as we see, the Lord was pleased. If you ever question if Jesus is going to be happy with your sacrifice, you just got to ask yourself one question. Is it the best? Not, is it Julie's best? Or Tyler's best? Is it my best? If what 
you are giving to Jesus is the best of what you have, he's going to be pleased. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever someone was going to give a sacrifice to the Lord, it always had to be the best. A perfect, unblemished animal. The first fruits of the harvest. Students, God doesn't want your leftovers. He doesn't want your broken down, junky stuff. He wants the best of what we can give Him. And the day that you think, God will just, He'll be happy with what I give Him, that's not worship anymore. And just keep it. Because He won't want it anyways. In second, uh, Samuel chapter 6, King David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. He was excited to have the physical representation of God coming home to his people. The word says that he only moved the ark six steps before he stopped and sacrificed a bull and a calf. The Bible then goes on to tell us that David danced before the Lord with all his might and shouted with joy. Michal, David's wife, sees him dancing in the streets as he enters the city, and she was filled with contempt. Critics will always be filled at contempt for our worship. There is a jealousy. There is an arrogance that critics have because they think they know everything. They think they have it figured out. They also don't like it because they're unwilling to give their best to Jesus. And they don't want anyone else to either. It doesn't matter what the critics think. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what the people sitting next to you think. The only opinion that matters is the Lord's. David tells her, I didn't do it for you. The Lord chose me. He appointed me leader of Israel. So I celebrate. He celebrated this miracle that a shepherd could become king. And I am willing to look even more foolish than this. Even humiliated in my own eyes. Mary wasn't concerned with what the disciples thought about her thought when she poured out that lavish gift of oil on Jesus. She didn't care what they thought when she used her hair as a towel. Uh, Francis Chan, a famous speaker, once had this guy come up to him after service and uh, proceeded to tell him that he didn't really care for worship that week. And I love Francis Chan's response. He's like, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you anyways. Don't worry about the critics. Worry about what the Lord will think. Is it the best? If it is, he'll accept and he'll be pleased with you. Our worship can also be very time sensitive, just so you know. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells the disciples, she did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus wasn't saying that we shouldn't help the poor. Actually, he said 
quite often to do the opposite. He wants us to help the poor. What he was focusing on was the fact that the worship Mary wanted to give him was time-sensitive. He literally was only going to be on earth a few days longer. And the extravagant gift that she had for him could only be given in that moment. Students, there are times that our worship is time-sensitive. Girls and guys retreat. The weather kind of cut it short, right? And we ended up calling it the 24 hours of power because we had a limited time. We didn't have three or four days for you to slowly work your way into your worship. We needed you to be focused. We needed you to get busy and immediately focus on Jesus and give Him His worship because He had miracles to perform. Your worship is also eternal. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed. Last week we talked about God's glory. The fame that he received from a temporary miracle, Lazarus' resurrection, and how it was eternal. I use the illustration of that stone being thrown in a lake, and though it quickly disappears under the surface of the lake, the ripple effect goes on. The long after the physical benefits of God's blessings are gone, the spiritual benefits ripple into eternity. You and I, we can't perform miracles without Jesus' help. But we can't do it on our own. But we can leave our mark on eternity in our worship. You see, Mary's gift was tied to the salvation of humanity. Sometimes I think we discount the importance of our worship and what we are giving to God. Oh, I don't feel like it today. You don't know. Mary didn't know what was going to happen. She was just a grateful disciple wanting to say thank you to someone who changed her life. But you see, that worship prepared the way for Jesus' miracle. See, worship is eternal and will be remembered by the Lord. As we wrap up, go back into doing a little bit of worship. You also need to know that our testimony is worship. Some people have some really dramatic, cool testimonies, right? Jesus saves them from drugs. They're about to jump off a bridge and an angel sweeps down and picks them up or something, you know. There's always the people that have really, really cool testimonies. There are some people... Maybe your testimony is a little less exciting. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church every single week of my life. I went to church camp one summer and got saved. I've been a Christian ever since. It's funny because we make the missions teams practice their testimonies. And there are some people It's like, man, my testimony is not that exciting. I don't care about exciting. I want you to understand how much Jesus has changed 
for your life. Everybody, everybody in this room, your testimony is important. See, your testimony is the change Jesus brought about in your lives. Um, How many of you know Jesus because another person told you what Jesus did in their lives? You know, yes. This isn't crazy, folks. Guess what? You know Jesus because someone told you that there was something that Jesus changed their life. Our testimony is how people learn. It's how people find out how awesome Jesus is. Verses 9 and 10 tells us that when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead. Yada, yada, yada. Because of him, many people had deserted, deserted them, the leading priests, and believed in Jesus. Because of Lazarus' testimony, because he showed people the change Jesus made, many people believed in Jesus. Sometimes our worship does come at a cost. though. Every action in life has an opposite reaction. Sometimes our worship leads to criticism. Other times our worship is a little more dangerous than harassment. In verse 10, it says, Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus again. Come on, man. This is a bad week. I've already died once. Can I not get a break, man? Maybe Jesus gives me a two-for-one special on the resurrection thing. Spiritually, folks, we are brought back to life to die again for Jesus. Later on in this chapter, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it, Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Did the priest want to kill him because he was lying? Nope. They wanted to kill him because Lazarus was telling the truth. See, the world will always wage war against the truth because, as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The truth of Jesus Christ is the single most powerful truth in the world. And guess what? Satan doesn't want you to be free. And he will use everything in his arsenal to stop us from being free. Jesus paid a price. And to follow him, you and I need to pay a price. And they have defeated him 
by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Jesus did his job. We do our job. We, be, we'll, we will be victorious. And they did not live, live they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Students, God is asking for a sacrifice. He's asking for a sacrifice of worship that will echo into eternity. And that comes from your testimony. Do you got the guts to worship God? Not here. This is easy. I love what we do, but worshiping in a room of Christians is easy. Do you got the guts to worship God with your life, through your attitude, through your speech, through your testimony to those around you? That's where real worship begins. I have the worship team come back up. Bow your heads, close your eyes.